0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Myron Kebis, Wisconsin State Aquaculture Veterinarian and Adjunct Assistant Professor at the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine. Hi, Dr. Kebis. Thanks so much for being on Aquadox.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Michelle.
0: Absolutely. So I was hoping we could start with a brief overview of what it means to be a state aquaculture veterinarian.
1: Well, I work with the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection, And in Wisconsin, fish health regulations for fish farms is regulated by that department. And it's kind of unique because if you look at many states, fish health is still within the realm of natural resource agencies. Now, in Wisconsin in 1997, the legislature moved it to agriculture because through the encouragement of fish farmers, they acknowledged that fish farming is farming, and as a result, it fit most appropriately within the agriculture department. And at that time, you know, there were already programs, of course, for dairy, beef, and swine, and poultry, and Wisconsin was one of the first states to be handed the responsibility to create program for for fish farming. I was the first to be given the task to direct the program, and that's what I've been doing for the past 21 years.
0: So by putting together this program, are you in more of a managerial role where you're overseeing a lot of farms? Are you working hands-on with the farmers? Are you teaching them? How does that work?
1: All of that. Let me go back. I graduated in 1992 from University of Wisconsin-Madison. No, I'm going to go back even further. Before 1988 when I started, I worked with fish farms. I worked in aquaculture. So I had it in mind before I went to veterinary school that I wanted to create a a marriage between my interest in fish and my interest in veterinary medicine. I have to admit, when I was accepted to veterinary school, there were a number of faculty that kind of questioned what I was doing because there was nothing within the curriculum. They really kind of thought it wasn't likely to lead anywhere. And I had actually been working uh, not only with farms, but I had worked with the university I was doing. I was associate research specialist working on Yellow perch and walleye, we we're working on induced spawning and different techniques of raising some of the species here in the upper Midwest. And so when I started vet school, I also had the interest of pursuing a master's. And I I needed to find a professor on campus and someone in the veterinary school who had an interest. And I went to a number and I asked around, and everyone shook their head and said, Yeah, no, you know, we work with dogs or cats or horses or cows. And then there was a professor in wildlife said, wait a minute, I think you have one last chance. There's a veterinarian up on the fourth floor and his name is Dr. Michael Collins. And as I recall, when he was a graduate student, he got a PhD in the immunology of channel catfish, but he's not doing that anymore. He's become an expert worldwide for Yoni's disease and other organisms. I said, well, uh, that may be my last chance. So I went up to the fourth floor I knocked on the door and I said, hi, I'm, uh, I'm interested in finding someone who can be my major professor because I want to do a project on fish. And he said, well, if you're ready to work, I'll, I'll work with you. And it's been a wonderful relationship that continues to today. And so I did a master's looking at stress in rainbow trout. And I was particularly interested in the effect of confinement and crowding and handling and how that affected serum cortisol and other parameters on the fish. So when I went to school I kind of um, kind of created my own curriculum.
0: So just because I'm curious here, did you show that crowding and confined spaces increased the serum cortisol, thereby showing that the fish were stressed?
1: The results of studies that I did in my master's work was quite interesting. And one of the things that pointed out is that fish do recover relatively quickly from short-term handling, but the effects of long-term crowding could really limit their ability to deal with acute stressors. So it really advanced the thinking in terms of the benefit of providing more room for the fish because it it, it helps them have a a stronger reserve in terms of handling any issues that come up when they're netted or sorted or moved from pond to pond.
0: So obviously, if you're causing stress to a fish, you're going to have poor welfare, which generally as a veterinarian and as an individual, we want to avoid. But what does long-term crowding, like what would be some of the negative effects that you could maybe see physiologically or pathophysiologically in the animals?
1: The whole issue of crowding on fish farms was interesting to me because, for one, the whole economics drives the effort to try to raise the greatest density of fish in the least amount of water. But as anyone who's raised fish experiences you reach a point where that crowding starts having negative effects now interestingly you almost have to start at the other end in that there's some situations where if you have too low of a density it can actually be stressful fish are schooling creatures and so if you have one fish in a tank they're really quite uncomfortable many species are unless there's at least several others and there's interesting things that happen and that is once you start increasing the density of fish you actually can get a reduction in stress Because what you start seeing is that there's a certain comfort in numbers that occurs once you reach a certain level. Now, as you start pushing that even further, then you start having other things that affect the density of fish you have in there. And that is they're going to be producing more waste. And that waste has to be removed. Otherwise, it starts accumulating. And so you would start having problems with things like elevated ammonia decreased oxygen, elevated carbon dioxide, elevated suspended solids, and so forth, that would start actually working against what the farmer's trying to do in terms of raising the fish in a healthy manner. And the fish will start slowing down in terms of their growth. You'll see it in terms of decreased feed consumption in in those situations. The other thing you'll start seeing with increased crowding is you can see situations where there's certain wear and tear that happens on fish in those conditions. But it's quite interesting to look at that. And one of the things when I started out after graduating, I received grants to do research and I looked at this. One of the interesting things found was if you take a group of fish, say rainbow trout, and you look at the ones that have a greater amount of abrasions on their fins, one might assume that it's due to perhaps aggression or nipping from other fish. But in fact, with rainbow trout, what you'll find is the most robust, fastest growing rainbow trout have the most fin erosions. And that's because they are so aggressively going after the feed that they're willing to spare what happens to their fins, in in effect, in that group. If you want to look at ones that have the least affected fins, the least erosion, you'll find it in the smallest, oftentimes thinnest, slowest growing ones which are not competing. So some of these things that we look at as veterinarians and then consider the welfare require some thought.
0: So for those animals then, is it a concern that the larger ones have these abrasions on them? Or is it considered that, well, they're feeding, they're not causing any debilitating injuries, we're going to let it go?
1: No, I think it's a concern. And so one of the things that we've learned to do is distributing the feed more broadly, so that there's less reason for them to have to compete, you know, and fight in the same spot for that food. And so um, we see a lot less of that than we did years ago, because we've learned that and fish welfare is more important. And it's increasingly a concern with the farms too.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Since we're talking about feed, I'm sure that there's some people listening who might have never seen an aquaculture farm and don't know the types of machines that are used to feed the fish and might have an image of you know putting a couple pellets in for a goldfish which would be very different do you think you could try to describe a visual for us you know how you have that distribution of feed
1: So feed is distributed in a number of different ways depending on type fish farm and there's many different types of fish farms. There are catfish farms in the south which are a number of acres, you know, five, ten acres. In those cases oftentimes you have feed that's projected out from a device that's pulled behind a tractor and is broadcast, flies through the air and lands on the surface. It's typically a floating feed and the catfish come up to the surface and eat. On a lot of our medium-sized farms, whether they be trout farms and game fish farms, which would include farms that raise everything from, you know, walleye, northern pike, bass, and so forth, there's a lot of hand feeding. So it. involves a farmer walking around with a bucket, five-gallon bucket with feed in it and a scooper and throwing that feed out in a broad area. And then there's variations in between. You'll see on smaller and medium-sized fish farms, automatic feeders, which are devices that hold larger quantities of this floating feed and may have a metal rod that goes into the water. And the fish actually learn that if they bump that rod, it tilts a plate, and that plate opens up a gap, and from that gap, a floating feed falls onto the surface. And so there's a whole variation there, all the way to the level of, if you look at some of the net pen salmon farms, they have underwater cameras where they're distributing the feed underwater, and they're able to watch and monitor the feed, and then stop the feed when the fish are not feeding.
0: That's super interesting. I don't think I'd realize the variety of ways you can feed farm fish. So I'd like to pivot to talk about how fish management is different from the management of other feed animals, since I know you've worked with other feed animals before.
1: Ten years ago, my boss came to me and said, Dr. Kebus, you've been doing a great job with fish farms. How would you like to direct poultry farms as well? And I said, No, not really. But she didn't walk away. And I looked at her and she looked up at the ceiling and I said, Do I have a choice? And she shook her head and said, no not really so i started an adventure after more than 20 years of exclusively working with fish farms of working very closely with poultry farms and what's interesting is there's great similarities so in in both regards we're dealing with large numbers of animals small animals with some of the same terms we talk about hatching we talk about incubation and from a veterinary standpoint we're really looking at population medicine where if we're looking at a pond where the farmer is sharing with us that the fish are not growing well or they're sick or they're dying, then in an effort to determine what's going on, we'll typically look at a sample. And it's important too how big of a sample we look at. Some cases we may be able to discern what's going on looking at as few as five fish. In some cases, we may need to sample 60 fish or 150 fish, particularly if it's a disease that's at a very low prevalence and we need a fairly high confidence that we know what we're looking at.
0: So since you mentioned that, let's talk about one of the examples where you had to evaluate the prevalence and you had to figure out how to get rid of this infectious disease. So back in 2006, you worked on preventing the spread of viral hemorrhagic septicemia. So first off, what is viral hemorrhagic septicemia? And then, you know, what were some of your first thoughts and processes for trying to eliminate it?
1: No, not at all. And and I could talk about it, but I can think of some uh, more interesting diseases.
0: Okay, great. Let's talk about a better one.
1: (laughs) And it's natural that viral hemorrhagic septicemia comes up. And, you know, Cornell's done a lot of work on it. It was a big issue, the effect of the region. But the reality is it never affected any fish farms. Hmm. And there's been a lot of effort that I've been involved in, in terms of dealing with what kind of testing and that. But I think i got a more interesting case for you. Ten years ago, I, along with my colleague, Dr. Michael Collins, started a fish health course where each year... We take 12 veterinary students and we go out to fish farms. And several years ago, when we went out to one of the farms that we visited, a trout farm, in fact, the largest trout farm in Wisconsin, we had several students who said, boy, this is really interesting. Is there some project we can look at? So I went to the farmer and I said, I've got some students that are interested in, is there something we can look at that would help you? I said, well, we've had this problem for years at this particular age on the farm, and we can't figure out what's going on. I said, well, great. Why don't I come back with the students and let's apply some of the techniques of fish veterinary medicine to try to figure out what's going on. When we looked at these uh, fish, it was particularly affecting fish that were in a three to six month age group. At that age on the farm, they were raised indoors in tanks with water flowing through them. And they would just start dying in large numbers. In fact, the total mortalities were approaching 50%. And the interesting thing in talking to the farmer was, but after a certain point, the mortality stopped and those fish would survive. But during that time, it was an unfortunate loss of fish. And so we did what we always do when we go out to a fish farm. We looked at the water quality parameters. When we did, the temperature was in the correct range, the oxygen was sufficient, the ammonia was not at elevated levels. So everything suggested water quality was not the primary cause. And it's always good to look at that first because that really is, in majority of cases, a contributing factor to fish diseases. Next thing we did was we carried out necropsies and we used a technique that I developed, the modified fish health assessment. That we looked, and one of the things when we looked at the fish, we began to see was that in a number of these cases, the fish were thinner than we would expect. And there was also a certain paleness to the digestive tract. And when we took the digestive tract out, instructed the student to open up the digestive tract and put the contents on a slide with a drop of water, cover slip on top, and examine it under a light microscope. And the student kind of leapt out and said, Dr. Kepis, take a look at this. And under the microscope were tremendous numbers of actively moving protozoal organisms. And I knew, because I'd seen this before, That This was spironucleus. So here we had identified what was causing this. And fortunately, from experience, knew that the treatment for it was relatively simple and readily available. And that was to introduce epsom salt, magnesium sulfate, into the diet. So instructed the the farmer to get some epsom salt mix it with mineral oil top dress it on the feed and feed and we went away you never know when you give a recommendation in veterinary medicine what the results are in this case i hadn't heard from the farm so i wondered what was going on i gave a call and they responded by saying that the fish were doing not only great but they were feeding at a tremendous rate and they were starting to grow and as a result of that they reduced the mortalities to less than a few percent during that life stage. And it's a great example of what veterinary medicine can do with fish farms because that farm now reduced significant losses. They reduced the labor associated with it, more predictable production. They saved a lot of money. They made a lot of money from that decision to pursue veterinary diagnosis and treatment.
0: That's amazing. What a great story. You're definitely right. More interesting.
1: I like that story because it's real. Some of the things that we do are equally important, if not more, like all the preventative efforts, all the biosecurity efforts to prevent VHS. Yeah, that's probably why we didn't see it on the farms, but it's harder to demonstrate. And the other part of the story too is we returned after we heard from the farmer that the fish were doing better. We wanted to convince ourselves, so we returned a month later to do an examination, a sample of that group that was now growing better and was healthier. And our effort was to see if we could find those parasites, which were there in tremendously high numbers prior to our recommendation for treatment. And I have to admit, I was surprised. We struggled to even find any. And in that regard, this is a nice example where treatment recommendation was, was very successful.
0: That's awesome, and pretty much what we all want out of veterinary medicine. So let's go back in time a bit. How did you start your own practice?
1: So when I graduated in 1993, I, I knew that I wanted to do fish medicine, but I also I had devoted a lot of effort to learning about other aspects of veterinary medicine. I mean, prior to veterinary school, I had worked in a small animal clinic. I'd ridden with large animal veterinarians. So when I graduated in 1992, I took a position as a mixed animal practitioner in Lake Mills, Wisconsin. And I worked with Dr. Bill Stork, who now owns that practice. And in the morning, we would go to dairy farms. And in the afternoon, we saw dog and cat calls. It was a year later that I left that and started my own practice. And I was the first veterinarian to start a private fish veterinary practice that provided service to fish farms. So a lot of people thought I was nuts. And some days I thought I was nuts. But I started out by getting a list of the fish farms. And I would drive out to the fish farms. And I'd pull up in the driveway. I get out of the car and they say, who the hell are you? And I say, oh, I'm uh, Dr. Myron Cabas. I'm a fish veterinarian. And they would say, what the hell is that? And so the beginnings of my career in fish medicine was really an effort to introduce not only myself, but the concept of fish veterinary medicine to fish farmers who had not seen this concept presented. So, and this still is a challenge today for veterinarians in this area. We have to constantly educate the farmers and the clients on what we can do and how we can help them.
0: I completely agree. Educating farmers and honestly, everyone involved in the production line is so important. So how did you transition from private practice to being involved in Wisconsin State Agricultural Programs?
1: So I started Wisconsin Aquatic Veterinary Service working with fish farms in Wisconsin, and I expanded to working with farms in Michigan and in Minnesota and and in other states and I did this for a number of years. Then in 1999, I took a position at the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection to direct the fish farm program there. When I was hired on, the state veterinarian said, great, now we have a veterinarian who has firsthand experience and knows about fish veterinary medicine, but we have a problem now. He's the only one in the whole state that knows fish veterinary medicine. At that point, I had a choice to make. And one was to say, well, great, pay for my travel and compensation, and I'll go and I'll do all the work for the fish farm. But I had already done that. One of the things I realized was because of the distance between farms, that perhaps there'd be another way to do it. So I suggested to the state veterinarian and to the department that we do something that no other state had done. And that was that we begin to train veterinarians and veterinary students and begin to deputize them throughout the state so that the farmer who was 300 miles in northern Wisconsin would have a veterinarian closer than 300 miles away and so forth. So with that, state veterinarians said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, "Um, let me send a letter out to all the veterinarians. And at that time, there were about two and a half thousand in Wisconsin, inviting them to come to meetings that I would hold throughout the state, talking about fish farms and what fish farmers need and what opportunities are there and what challenges. In response to that letter, I had over 90 veterinarians attend these meetings, which I thought and everyone else thought was pretty good. So once we had that list, my idea was to send a letter to all the fish farmers saying, hey, we've got a group of veterinarians who, they're interested. Would you be interested in attending a meeting and begin to discuss how we can all work together. And that was the beginning of this program that I put together to train private practice veterinarians. But the veterinarians said something that every veterinarian would say. They said, we want to, but look, we don't want to go out to the farm until we're comfortable knowing how to do an necropsy, what to look for, can we get some training? And there was no training in, in the veterinary school or anywhere else. So I created that training. So I said, well, let's start. I'll call up Fish Farm, and why don't we all meet on a certain day and spend part of a day, and I'll walk you through how to walk through a fish farm, what to look for, how to measure water quality, how to do a necropsy, what are some of the considerations. I did a number of these over a few years. So much so that some of the other states began to look at this and say, whoa, this is kind of interesting. So Minnesota said, hey, can you come over? So I drove over to Minnesota and did training. And some of the veterinarians that I trained are continue to practice today. And then it was when South Dakota asked me to come in January. that I thought, wait a minute, you're traveling all over again. Maybe there's another way to do this. And when I returned from that trip from South Dakota, I was looking over the shoulder of a colleague in the office. And my colleague was looking at an online course And it was a course to train veterinarians how to do assessments for Yoni's disease. I said, where did you get that? And she said, oh, that's from Dr. Michael Collins. I said, Mike? Mike was my major professor. So I called up Mike. I said, Mike, that's really great. Can we do one for fish? He said, sure. We just need to get the funds for it. And so he and I applied for a grant from USDA. We received funding. And we developed a five-module online course to train veterinary students and veterinarians on how to do work on fish farms. First module introduces them to some general concept. What do fish farms look like? Another module on water quality, because that's a very important basis. Another one looking at biosecurity. And then the fourth and fifth ones focus in on how to do a fish health inspection, which is the major work that... Veterinarians do on fish farmers. And the other is how to do a modified fish health assessment, which is a technique that I developed back in the 90s, which is a production medicine tool. And that course started and continues to be successful over the years. And very soon it'll be rehoused at the site for the American Association of Fish Veterinarians, a new website in 2021. And it's been something that we've used to train veterinary students and veterinarians. I should add, after it came out, I took it to conferences with fish farmers and I showed the fish farmers. And they said, wow, that's really great. Can we take it? I said, no. They said, what do you mean no? I said, why don't you wait? Let me develop one for fish farmers. So I joined up with another colleague, Dr. Chris Hartlip of University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. And we developed an online course for fish farmers on how to use a veterinarian, how to understand what the veterinarian is doing and the basis for the number of samples that are taken and time that it takes for laboratory results to come back. That one has been even more broadly received and continues to be used not only throughout the country, but throughout the world. Same as with the veterinary one. Veterinarians from all over the world have taken that.
0: Those modules sound amazing. And as a student, I'm always looking for more opportunities to learn about this field. Speaking of which, before I let you go, do you have any advice for our student listeners?
1: I have a lot of advice. Sometimes my family says I have too much advice. but My advice to students who are interested in pursuing fish veterinary medicine and working with fish farms is to reach out and to meet people. It's a wonderful small sector of veterinary medicine, but a very inviting and very good group of veterinarians who are willing to help. Mentorship is very strong within the fish veterinary community.
0: That's such great advice. And I'm certainly glad that I reached out to you because I've learned a bunch and I can't wait to get more involved in the fish vet family. Well, Dr. Kebus, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Aquadox today.
1: Yeah, <laughs> good. Well, it was a real pleasure talking to you.
0: And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Myron Kebis for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra minute, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.